We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, listeners, and welcome to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, maths, and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station, so head on over to edge.org.au for more info. My name is Ollie Dove, and thank you all for tuning in today. This episode is actually a special one, as it's part of an Antarctica double bill. If you were here in Hobart last week, you might have seen that there was quite a lot of ice and penguin displays across the city, and that's because the Australian Antarctic Festival was on. As part of it, an exhibition at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies included a panel of a mixture of ecologists and social scientists talking about Antarctic research, and you'll hear from them in today's episode. Next week, we hear from an artist who went to the South Pole to combine science and art. Before I tell you more about the panel... We met together on Luchuita, and I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on where we met, the Palawa. And as this is going out to you, listeners, across Australia, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land from where you're tuning in from. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The first panellist that we hear from is Katie Marks, who is a final year PhD candidate and research fellow from the School of Humanities at the University of Tasmania. Her research focuses on public engagement in the Antarctic gateway cities, and through this, she aims to develop new strategies to platform diverse voices within the Antarctic sector. Katie has a professional background in the disability sector and has an interest in co-design, community development, and accessible communication. So, without further ado, let's head into the panel. Now, amusingly, we have accidentally sat ourselves up in that we have the ecologists to my left and the social sciences to my right. That was not deliberate. We did not mean to have this sort of tennis match set up, but it's a great way to open up the discussion. I'm going to ask Katie, what is it like working in the Antarctic field, given that we associate it so much with natural and physical sciences? Fantastic question. G'day, folks. I might start by spitballing a little bit about what Antarctic social science and humanities research looks like. Because as you said, we're we're relatively hidden. So there are sociologists, political scientists, literary theorists, musicologists, all different types of people working in the Antarctic space, addressing questions around how do we keep the Antarctic treaty system secure into the future? How do we keep people cooperating across national boundaries? How do we keep people safe and well when they're in Antarctica? What does it mean for people to feel a connection with Antarctica even if they don't get to visit? And and how do we deploy public engagement strategies and and, and arts projects to to help facilitate these connections? So these are all really, really important questions. If we don't have a good grip on them, then Antarctic science becomes really difficult to to operate, really. Yeah, the, the social sciences and humanities tends to be a little bit hidden and act as a bit of an afterthought in the Antarctic sector right now. Um, There are a few reasons for this, I think. In the community, we tend to be less platformed, so there are fantastic STEM initiatives going on to raise awareness of research in the community. So the, you know, National Science Week and Beaker Street is a really good example, and we don't, we're yet to see those kind of platforms for the social sciences and humanities more broadly, but as well in the Antarctic sector. 
Um, internally, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to find resourcing and opportunities if you're a social scientist in the Antarctic sector. There are fewer postgraduate appointments or postdoctoral appointments available, for example. There are fewer fundraising, funding opportunities. Um, you tend to find it more difficult to break into giving feedback on policy. So there's this cycle by which it's, it's hard to get representation and because you don't have that representation, opportunities are fewer. I think it's improving though. Um, you know, I'm, I'm relatively new to Antarctic research and I think thanks to the people who've come before me, I have more opportunities than people before me did and I hope that in the future, you know, we can be part of making a new generation of social scientists um, have even more opportunities in the Antarctic space. So it's difficult, um, it's challenging, but I think it's improving. Mm -hmm. The next panellist that you're about to hear from is Dr Nicole Hill, who is a quantitative ecologist. She quantifies and maps marine biodiversity to help managers make decisions about spatial planning in the marine environment. Several years ago, she was lucky enough to work in Antarctica and was captured by its beauty, uniqueness and importance in the global system. Most of her current research focuses on Southern Ocean biodiversity, how it's changing and what that means for the future of this very special place. As ecologists, have either of you had much to do with social science work? Is there any crossover from your fields at all? So personally, in my research, I don't have a lot of crossover with um, social science. Um, but I know that there is a lot of um, really good work happening uh, on the policy side of things. And I guess into the future, understanding how people make decisions ultimately is a good is useful to the science as well because that helps us make our science as relevant as it can be and presented in a way that can be understood and digested and taken up into into you know impactful decisions oh, interesting. and lots of nodding which when it goes out on the radio they won't quite understand that <laughs> nice little mama next to appear on the panel we hear from megan woods who is a senior lecturer in management in the tasmanian school of business and economics in which she teaches and researches in the areas of strategic human resource management and workplace mental health. She also leads the University of Tasmania's Future Polar Workforce Initiative and the People Programme for the Centre for Antarctic and Southern Ocean Technology and Engineering, a collaboration between UTAS, the Australian Antarctic Division and CSIRO. Megan has a particular interest in optimising the workforces, work environments and work experiences of people working in the Antarctic and Southern Ocean. Megan, how important is it to actually be in Antarctica itself to study Antarctica? So first thing to say is when we think, if we th only think about the Antarctic workforce as the people who are in Antarctica or go to Antarctica, no pun intended, but it's drop in the ocean. There are thousands of people doing work related to Antarctica and whose work is vital to their being able to be work done in Antarctica who are nowhere near it. I mean, you've got in the Australian Antarctic Division, for instance, about 400 people work in headquarters, 90 to 250 of those are expeditioners that will actually go down onto the Antarctic continent. Then you add in all the people in Canberra in the department and all the people around the world who support the treaty work, the logistical work, the maritime work, and all the other functions that make it possible for a relatively small group of people to go down there and work on the ice, above the ice or under the ice. I guess what I'm trying to say there is there are a lot of people doing work which is crucial to Antarctica and what we can learn from Antarctica and what we can understand about Antarctica who have not and never will set foot on it. 
And that <laughs> school of thought that that's a good thing because we are also trying to minimise human footprint on the Antarctic continent as well. But that means that we have some really interesting issues arise when you've got people making decisions about or trying to do work to support such an unusual and idiosyncratic work environment. And you know, there are, there's a lot of evidence that there's a lot of um, differentiation between, and dare I say privileging um, or prioritising of perspectives from people who have been down on the ice, who have stayed down there over summer, over winter, several years, many times, versus the people who haven't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's an aspect of lived experience. You can know that it is one of the, the driest, highest, hardest work environments to ever work in, but you can only know that abstractly unless you've actually lived through it and worked in it yourself. But that's not to say that if you haven't worked in it yourself, you can't understand it well enough to then be able to make sensible decisions about it and come up with good ideas about it. So one of the really interesting things um, that we're exploring in the work about the future of, of the Antarctic and Southern Ocean workforce is how can we make more, how can we create more opportunities for people to contribute to those discussions, those decision processes, that knowledge, other than just the people that go down there? And also, how can we have those different perspectives valued and included as much as the perspectives of the people who do the work down there on the ice? Have you found them out yet or are you at the beginning of working through that process? Well, one of the issues that we're exploring at the moment are some of the ways in which the actual work environments might be made more supportive and more inclusive. And part of that is to do with physical inclusivity. Um, so as you're changing, as you're changing the diversity of people that go down there and giving new and different groups of people the opportunities to be there, then obviously that's a learning process because those people might have needs that haven't been accommodated before, not been accommodated well. And then that's an opportunity for organisational learning to say, oh, okay, that's, that's something we haven't, th there's now an issue that we haven't thought of before, we can now engage in and do better. So, for instance, the Antarctic Division has just changed its field manual to say that all expeditioners have to have a toilet break at least once every four hours. I'm a little bit surprised they had to wait so much longer than that until now. Mm. Um, and that was for particular reasons, but obviously that's, that change is going to benefit everybody who now gets to have a toilet break far more often, and there are a whole lot of beneficial health mm. impacts to that. <laughs> Um, so whenever you diversify a workforce, whenever you bring new perspectives and experiences into the conversation, you're also creating massive opportunities to learn and change. Mm -hmm. And the work that we've done on diversity, particularly in improving physical supports, or, um, shows us that when you make those changes, mm -hmm. inevitably they benefit far more people than they were originally mm -hmm. created for. So the flow through effect Mm -hmm. um, manifest over time and mm -hmm. ends up having, you know, a beautiful ripple effect for a whole lot of other people that you probably never thought of originally, but are really going to benefit from that. Mm, absolutely. Our last panellist, but certainly not least, was Dr. Sophie Besley, a senior lecturer in quantitative Southern Ocean Ecology within the Ecology and Biodiversity Centre at IMAS. She has a passion for integrative Antarctic and Southern Ocean research focused on the ecology of highly mobile marine predators and the ecosystems upon which they depend. She works a lot with animal-borne telemetry, including work on whales, seals and penguins. Speaking of workplaces that are full of a uh, mixture of people, presumably on a base or a voyage down south, you would have 
lots of different type of people from different levels. There is potential for a hierarchical nature of the workforce down there, you would think. But Sophie, as someone who has been on one of those voyages going down there and stopped off at a base too, was there any sense of that or can you potentially talk us through what it's like to be with so many different people? Yeah, thanks uh, for that question. Voyages, especially very hierarchical, mm -hmm. just the nature of vessels is that way. You know, you've got the engineering hierarchy and you've got the master down and that's sort of bedded down in safety. Um, but on a voyage, you will have multiple teams. You'll have a science team, you'll have people in charge of all the logistics and then the people, the crew actually operating. And so, you know, to have successful outcomes really means that those three teams have worked together really well. Mm -hmm. It is very structured, but I think there's more and more implementation um, to ensure that, you know, within that system, everybody has a voice, right? Because um, everybody needs to feel safe that they can speak. If they see something, to say something, um, the PhD student or the supervisor, the master or the, um, you know, the third mate, anyone can actually speak up. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's that's called psychological safety. Mm -hmm. um, that's a fundamental for high-performing teams, and that's really where in the Antarctic sector, in the field, on stations, um, in teams in the university, you know, that's where we're all looking to say, well, how do we make our teams um, perform well together? Mm -hmm. Do you find that in general psychological safety is looked after, or it's seen as a protocol, like a tick? Yes, we do have policies in place, or do each individuals know that they can actually it's not just a everyone can have a voice but do they actually use it well I mean there's certainly implementations at the very small scale there's little um, written um, notes that people can post in boxes so that they're actually every day kind of actively voicing um, but right through I think you know especially the expedition of protocol is really um, in a big state of reform, I think, in terms of expectations of what kind of people we want to be um, in place and mm -hmm. how we want them to be interacting. Yeah. Um, and I think at the university as well, um, you know, we're seeing improvements, especially at, I mean, IMAS, I think we're seeing improvements continually. Yeah. Nicole, do you have anything from your experience down south to add to what it was just like in that area? Um, well, it was overall a life-defining positive experience, um, but it's, I think, a little bit of an interesting social experiment because, like Sophie was saying, you know, to be a successful season, you need a whole lot of people to be working well together and getting along well together. And essentially, half the time, these are people who have never met each other before they get on that boat. Um, some of them have, some of them are... Um, you know, have been down multiple times, have lots of experience, whatever else. You have people who have no experience, you have people who have lots of experience, you have people who um, are tradies, you have people who are scientists, you have people who are managers, you have people from lots of different walks of life. And then you throw them in this remote environment where you expect that they're going to get along and they need to get along because you are in a remote environment. That's, that's, what, that's where you are for three, six, however long months, 12 months if you're wintering. Um, and so I think it's, it's a, a little bit of an interesting, interesting social experiment. 
my experience in Antarctica was several years ago now, and I'm sure lots of things have, um, have changed. My experience as a woman down there was you know, a, a positive one, um, but because there are fewer of you, you do get a bit more attention than you would back home. Um, that's just kind of a numbers game, I guess. You've got you know scientists who have a particular pathway in life usually um, you know they have they have their um, experiences you have um, tradespeople who have a completely different set of experiences and so that makes for some very interesting uh, discussions um, in in the spare time and I guess initially I found that a little bit challenging but it was actually one of the really rewarding things that I, I came away from that experience is learning a lot more about a whole range of people and their breadth and wealth of experience. So I felt enriched for that diversity that we had on station. Stay with us for part two, listeners, as we open up our panel for questions from the audience. Thank you. Uh, That's been so interesting. Um, I was just having lunch with someone who had applied for the Arts Fellowship, but she was worried that even if she was successful, she wouldn't be able to go to Antarctica because she was over 60. And uh, with COVID on the horizon, that's seen as a major risk. I'm just wondering about ageism. I've also noticed that older women don't tend to overwinter, don't tend to travel as much as younger women because of uh, their children in some cases. Just like to hear your, um, your thoughts on how age affects access. I can answer that. That's a great question. Um, it's more your medical fitness. That will be the, the be-all or end-all. I shared an office with a 60-plus chemist who meets her medical criteria every year, year in, year out, and she's indomitable, doesn't have kids. So there's definitely, you know, you can slice and dice it quite a few ways. And I think if you do the numbers, you will see that there's um, under-representation there, but it's not an explicit exclusion. One of the things that's interesting when you have diversity conversations is that we tend to focus on one characteristic at a time but of course we know that there's additional complications where people intersect so for instance in the person you had lunch with happens to may happen to be female may happen to be in her 60s may happen to have whatever state of health they have may happen to have family commitments and other interests back here any one of those might be ones that are more influential than others on whether they can have an experience on the Antarctic program and what that will be But if you only focus on one of those dimensions, you can oversimplify and sometimes miss the influence of the others as well. I I would wonder if if I was at lunch with your friend, I would ask them which one of those characteristics they feel like is going to be the most impactful on whether they can go at all and what kind of experience they might have down there. It might have nothing to do with their age. It might have much more to do with other things. And that's one of the things that we need to make sure we think really expansively about when we're talking about diversity all of us have 101 different characteristics that we bring into a work setting or a work experience which ones are the most influential the most in play in any given setting or any given moment changes all the time but that's why it's important to keep unpacking and asking the questions and take multi-dimensional views where we can rather than just focus on whether the person is a particular age category or gender category or functional specialty or level of experience. Um, I apologise if it's a silly question, but um, I know Antarctica is a difficult place to venture to, but um, is there any or have there been people that have been able to go there that have um, disabilities? Like is there opportunities for that or have people 
with those sort of disabilities being there before? I, I can't necessarily answer from a field experience perspective. Um, and I can't answer from the perspective of somebody with a disability. And it's, I should highlight there's actually a group starting up who have started up called Diversity in Polar Research, I believe. So they out of the UK, but they're international now and they are people with lived experience um, from a variety of backgrounds who are addressing questions like this, including questions around the intersection of disability and polar research. So I'd encourage everyone to get on their website and, and look at the work that they're doing. Um, but we do know that there are a lot of barriers to people who identify as having a disability entering into Antarctic research, be it either here, as in not in Antarctica or in Antarctica. We know that the majority of national Antarctic programs have quite a stringent medical test. For example, I might not qualify on account of my BMI. People who have chronic um, health conditions or even mild health conditions or in some cases histories of um, of, of things such as cancer would have a tr tough time getting onto an expedition, particularly a long expedition. And if you were to put people's hands up in the room, that, that excludes a lot of people. And these are intersectional issues. Um, we also know, based on my own research, for example, that we tend to value people in the Antarctic sector more if they've been south. So if you're somebody who is barred from going south by circumstances that are outside of your control, not only does that have a dint on your ability to experience things, it has an impact on the way that people see you and see your value as a researcher. To give you an example, um, the Australian Antarctic Medal right now, unless in exceptional circumstances, can only be awarded to somebody who spent more than 12 months on the continent. So you could spend your entire career as an integral part of the Antarctic Treaty system, you know, advocating for the protection of the continent but if you don't set foot or if you don't spend a significant amount of time there, you're devalued. So there are material barriers to people who have disabilities and to people who tick any number of other intersectional boxes, but there are cultural barriers too and we need to start to shift some of these. Whenever you start looking at policies and uh, their legacy on their, their implications for who can do things and who can't, you need you, you always got to get behind the Emerald Curtain to find out well what was the thinking behind that, what's the scenario we're trying to avoid, etc. So in the case of, you know, those very stringent medical requirements, one of the rationales for that is that it costs a huge amount of money to get people down onto the Antarctic continent and it costs even more to medivac them out. So it makes sense to try and minimise the chances of needing to do that. That said, there are many examples of people having emergency, you know, health emergencies whilst on the Antarctic continent and needing to be medevaced out. It's one of the reasons why expeditioners are all trained to be surgery assistants so that in the event of an emergency, if you had to perform an operation in an Antarctic station, there are people who can help out and help make that successful. So again, I think, and I'd make the point also that a lot of the people that, that Katie's just um, alluded to who are living with lifetime health conditions have a lifetime's experience in managing them in a variety of different circumstances. You know, if you're a chronic asthmatic, you know how to manage your asthma in every set of life circumstances you've experienced because that's how you're still here today. So I think there is an opportunity for some different thinking about the assumption that if you have a health issue that will, you know, what are the chances of that actually turning into a situation that could be that impactful versus what are the chances that it will probably be okay 
or very likely be okay or be able to be managed in the situation. And there's also the, the context in which we can manage that is changing. For instance, um, we have different opportunities now for people to be given assistance from people on other stations. Um, the Nyena is now got the new um, AAD ship is now going to have helicopter capability as well. So in worst case scenario, if something goes really wrong in a station, you might be able to send a helicopter in to get that person back to the ship and that might be sufficient to deal with the situation. So personally, I'm kind of hopeful that as the technology changes and enables different ways of working and doing work, that we'll also see that translate into a different mix of opportunities as well. That was a very long answer to a short question, <laughs> but I hope it was worth it. Have you seen the research that the Hobart Hospital is conducting on remote medicine already impacting the ability of people to get down to the ice that might have been barred before? Are you asking if there is any or are you asking if I've seen it personally? Either way. Okay. <laughs> no, um, I, do, I do collaborate with the people that work in the Centre for Antarctic Remote and Maritime Medicine and that's very much their specialty, working in remote and isolated conditions. Um, and it will be really interesting to see what the change is there. I'm hopeful there's a lot of excellent people working on this and making these new opportunities, but it'll be really interesting to see how long it takes and what pathways it takes for those two be translated into changes to people's experiences. Just to add to that point, Megan, I think a really crucial thing going forward is for there to be um, social science and humanities positions embedded in on-site Antarctic research down in the field. So that way people who are addressing these kind of questions can actually experience things firsthand um, and, and really develop a sound understanding of what we can do better. Because at the moment there are very few opportunities which, which limits our ability to actually you know, develop meaningful and significant um, measures. I just wanted to um, go back to Megan's earlier point about how big the workforce is that actually is involved in Antarctica. And I think Hobart is a really special place because pretty much one in every four people that you walk past in the street are probably involved somehow, either through supplying food or supporting logistics or part of um, the Kamala Commission and the policy space or engaged in science and, and science research. So um, lots of opportunities and expanding opportunities with uh, technology and citizen science, educational outreach, you know, virtual tours online of ships or stations. We've, it's a lot more accessible than it ha ever was before and increasingly um, we're looking at, at growing that space. So citizen science, counting penguins or seals from space, mm -hmm. um, following an animal that's got a tracker on it and, and monitoring everybody can be involved through the classroom or, um, you know, just the public space. I think that's a great way to leave off our talk for the day. But please, a round of applause for our panellists that came down today. <laughs> Have a lovely afternoon and thank you for coming. This programme was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. 
Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.